What's up, everyone? This is episode number 10 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and I want to start off this week by giving a shout out to those of you who sent me your collections on Instagram. I saw everything from vintage rookies to nice autos and patches. I even saw a 1990 Skybox base card, which, mind you, I feel like that might be the ugliest set in basketball card history. But I have a new appreciation for it now. So thank you, those of you who sent me your stuff. Um, It was a great way to learn about you guys and your collections. If you haven't done so already, it's not too late. There's no actual due date here. Tag me on Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, and add the hashtag YICollect, which is W-H-Y-I-C-O-L-L-E-C-T. So all of that stems from last week where I talked about my favorite cards, which include Pacers cards, Flawless cards, NBA Finals game use, and you can probably see that one of the common themes there is that I really like patch cards. I know they're not everyone's cup of tea, but for some reason they've always appealed to me. I was planning a patch episode for the future when things slowed down a bit, but all of that changed early this week. Some of you saw on Sunday I posted a Donovan Mitchell card to my Instagram, which seems like a really nice National Treasures RPA. The problem is that someone swapped the patch out to try and make the card better. They decided that a two-color patch wasn't good enough, they needed to try and make it better. Now while this isn't anything new, it does add to the avalanche of altered cards that have been uncovered in the last couple of weeks. So today I want to take you guys through a little course that I like to call Patch Cards 101. Before we get there, however, I've got to address what's happening in the NBA right now. I'm recording this on Wednesday, so the new series have started, but I can't ignore those two games that happened on Mother's Day, the two Game 7s. We had Portland and Denver, with Portland moving to the next round despite a mediocre game from Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, just went off, made me want to buy a McCollum patch. And then we had, of course, the Philly and Toronto game, which I think that one gets a lot of credit now. People just completely ignore the first game. The first game was incredible. The second game was incredible. You had Kawhi dribbling to the corner, hitting the buzzer beater. It was just a crazy day for NBA fans. I don't know if everyone has really taken the time to step back and appreciate what we saw because that's really an anomaly as far as the NBA goes. I I don't remember ever seeing that. Now, while I mentioned I wanted to buy a McCollum patch, I will have to confess here, I did break my rule about buying players in the playoffs, and I bought a card of a Portland player. So you're probably saying to yourself, oh, he finally got that Damian Lillard patch. No, not yet. McCollum? No, but it was very tempting. Um, I actually snagged a Zach Collins Silver Prism rookie, a PSA 9, for around $16 shipped. This kid had a real strong series. I've liked what I've seen from him in the playoffs so far. I thought the price was right. You know, it's basically cheaper than getting a card slapped for myself. So who knows? He didn't have a great game one against Golden State, but who knows? Um, So now we're left with Portland and Golden State, which um, Steph went off last night. And then we will have Toronto and Milwaukee, which should be pretty exciting as well. Another thing I want to touch on, though, there's just so much happening in the NBA this week, the draft lottery. So we did all of this build up, and even on this podcast, we spent a couple of episodes talking about Zion, and we said, what if he goes to Chicago? What if he goes to Los Angeles? What if he goes to New York? 
We didn't say, what if he goes to Memphis or what if he goes to New Orleans? But that's exactly what happened. And in my mind, I was already thinking about talking on this podcast about, oh, you know, all of the Anthony Davis trade scenarios and, well, what happens when the team that's going to trade the Zion pick for Anthony Davis gets the Zion pick firsthand? That's a new wrinkle that I really hadn't considered and I hadn't seen discussed before. I'm sure I'm going to talk about that more in the summer. I'm tempted to do another Zion episode now, but I don't want to exhaust that. I don't want you guys to get Zion fatigued so early in the summer. Trust me, we're going to talk about him. Okay, so there was this Donovan Mitchell patch that I mentioned earlier. You can see it on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. It was switched out, and it really prompted me to get into this patch episode that I've wanted to do for a while because... You know, you, you guys know I'm really into patches. I really like them, okay? So what I'm going to try and do today is, is to cover a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. I want to try and give you a brief history of memorabilia cards. Um, and in the process, I'm going to touch on a number of things such as player-worn versus game-worn, patch provenance, patch switching. And then finally, at the end, I want to give you some tips for acquiring these cards for your own collection. So let's start off with the history of memorabilia cards. And I'm not going to cover every oddball or unlicensed card here, but I do want to start off with a brand that did not have an NBA license because all too often I hear that Upper Deck gets, they get a lot of credit for having the first licensed NBA jersey cards on the market in 1997. But the first actual game used basketball jersey cards were put out in 1996 by a brand called Press Pass. For those of you that are not familiar with this brand, they have a, a pretty rich history in NASCAR and racing cards. They were doing a lot of really cool things around this same time in 96. They had track suits from some of the drivers in cards, and then they had cards that had pieces of tires in them that were used in races. This brand also made quite a few college basketball products in the late 90s and early 2000s, but they lost the college license in 2010. Eventually, they closed their doors in 2015, but they made the first basketball jersey card. It wasn't, however, the first NBA licensed card, and that came from Upper Deck. They got into the NBA game in 1997 with their game jersey set. With a few exceptions, if you really wanted memorabilia cards in 97 or 98, this was it. A couple of things to note about this set. The checklist was really solid. The jersey piece was large. The back of the card stated what season the jersey was taken from, which I really like that. So, for example... A lot of them are from the previous season, which is 96-97, but Reggie Miller's jersey was from the 93-94 season, and the card tells you that on there, so I thought that was pretty cool. As we move on, then 1998 is the first instance that I recall, at least, of photo shoot jerseys being used in cards. Uh, People make a really big deal about that now but it wasn't such a big deal then. These were iconic cards. I've never seen a Jason Williams collector turn down this card simply because it was a a photo shoot jersey. Now, obviously, the situation is a little bit different today, and I'll touch on that in a little bit. If you've ever tried to track any of these down, though, you know that they're tough to find. They were tough pulls back then. Um, One of my listeners named Jake has a YouTube channel called 90s B-Ball Cards, He has several videos where he talks about the pack odds for these sets and tries to pull some jersey cards of his own. I can't recommend not only those videos, but his channel enough, especially if you like 90s cards. He has a lot of quality, informative, free content. I think we might team up for some stuff in the future. 
Now, while they hadn't done much in the basketball jersey world yet, Skybox jumped in during this time frame. We're still talking about around 1998. And they had a pretty rare game use shoe insert that they featured in some other sports as well called Authenkicks. Now, as far as memorabilia goes, the stuff really took off in 1999. Upper Deck continued adding to their number of jersey sets and Fleer contributed some as well. We also had chopped up hats from the draft, chopped up nets. Um, A lot of cool stuff came out during this time frame. And really, I wish we had more of this obscure stuff today. And although Press Pass had some multicolored stuff in their releases and had some pieces of, of piping or trim, you might hear people refer to those, that's the material around like a neck hole or an arm hole. Um, those are considered patches. But the first actual standalone patch set came as a variation of Upper Deck's 1999 game jersey set. Now, I personally don't have any of these, and even the lesser known players demand a premium. I remember in the last year I tracked down a Jonathan Bender, and the asking price was well over $300, so needless to say, I passed. That's not to say it's not worth that. I'm not going to spend that for Jonathan Bender, though. Now, I mentioned the trim patches just a second ago, but this is a good opportunity, and I want to clarify a simple mistake that a lot of newer collectors make. I see a lot of people, whether on Facebook, on eBay, or uh, Blowout, they'll label these single-color jersey swatches as patches. Or they'll say that a pinstripe jersey is a patch, and that's not the case. A patch is either the trim or the piping from a neck hole or the armhole. Um, It's a design or a name that was either sewed on or screen printed on in some cases. And sometimes this can be one color, but you can tell by the look of the material. And a lot of the cards will even be labeled as prime. So please, if you're listening, please, please stop listing your jersey cards as patches. So I've already referred to photo shoot jerseys at least once in this podcast, but I want to make sure I explain player worn versus game worn before I move on. I feel like the definition's pretty self-explanatory, but player worn is something a player wore in a photo shoot or some sort of event or even just for a moment. Typically with rookies, it's going to be photo shoot stuff. Game worn is material that's been worn in a game. It is, however, worth noting that Card companies consider warm-ups to be game-worn as well, even though they weren't worn in the actual game itself. And this isn't exclusive to Panini. Fleer and Upper Deck did this as well. So, how do you know if your stuff is player-worn or game-worn? The best reference point is usually the back of the card. And the phrasing has changed over the years. Panini hasn't quite gotten there yet, but I think it's interesting to see what Topps is doing with their baseball stuff now. Some cards have holograms that tell you the exact game, while other pieces are very generic. If you've got a Topps Relic, go ahead and flip it over, and you'll see that it probably says something to the effect of, the Relic contained in this card is not from any specific game, event, or season. One of my friends knows a wrestler who's in the WWE right now, and Topps will send him a couple of shirts when they send him cards to sign, and it's basically like, here, put this on in the kitchen while you sign these cards real quick. But it didn't always used to be that way. When the whole memorabilia era started, the back of the card was a lot more specific and gave you some sort of information about where the jersey was acquired. So let's start all the way back in 1997 with the 9798 UD game jerseys. It would say on the front of this card is an authentic piece of game worn Reggie Miller or whoever it was jersey from the 1993-94 season. Um, And then as we moved along in 1999, when there was a standalone patch set, it clarified that. 
said on the front of this card is an authentic piece of a patch taken from a game used jersey worn by Shaquille O'Neal in an NBA game. We hope you enjoy this piece of NBA history. I mentioned on my last podcast that patches to me are like little pieces of history, so it's nice to see some continuity there. Um, Another example as we move through time here from 2000 and 2001, Bowman's Best, there's nothing on the back, but the front was clearly labeled Authentic Player Worn NBA Jersey. And keep in mind, all the player worn stuff was just for rookies. There were a couple of odd exceptions in the 2000s where Tops would have a player wear a special Tops jersey, which was kind of strange, but kudos to them for trying something new. Now, something else that we saw from time to time was where companies would actually put a picture of the jersey that they cut up on the back of the card. And we saw this more with baseball and football, but it did happen in basketball occasionally. One example that comes to mind is 2003-2004 Fleer Genuine. I think there was like a pull tab in the card, if I remember correctly. You pull it and it reveals a picture of the jersey, which is pretty cool. My personal favorite was from 2005-2006 Topps Big Game where it had the selective swatches and the nameplate cards. But you need to be careful. Just because there's a picture of a jersey doesn't mean it's a sure thing. Donruss got in some hot water at one point for using and picturing a Jim Thorpe jersey that was later suspected of being a fake. And then Panini bought Donruss and kept using those pieces later on. Regardless, when there's a picture of the jersey on the card, I think in general it still gives me a little more peace of mind. Uh, and especially back then when Topps was still acquiring those from NBA properties. As we move forward, standalone patch sets became a lot more common around 2003. Uh, Before then, you saw a lot of tags and random patch pieces inserted into jersey sets. That same year, Fleer even came out with a release called Patchworks that featured a number of different patch sets. They started small but progressively got larger and larger. A lot of the first exquisite RPA patches, they seem small when we look back, but I think that the exquisite brand played a big role in the emergence of the jumbo patch. Um, In 2004-2005, one of my favorite patch sets came out, which is UD Ultimate Premium Patches, which are numbered to 75. I'd really love to track down the Reggie Miller from this set. I've seen a couple for sale and I lost out on them, so I'm still trying. Um, Around 2006, though, some of the phrasing on the back of memorabilia cards started to change a little bit. So here's an example. Um, I saw one card that said the relic featured on the front of this card was worn during an official NBA game. The material was acquired directly from NBA Properties Incorporated. They still tell us it was worn during a game, but they're not very specific. And that was from Topps. Um, Upper Deck, on the other hand, I felt like they always did a really good job with this. Even when cards had multiple players on them, they took the time to clarify a little. And this one's from the 2009-2010 season. It says, This memorabilia has been certified to us as having been game used by Sebastian Telfair as a member of the Trailblazers, Allen Iverson at the 2005 NBA All-Star Game, and Raymond Felton in an official NBA game. Now, Upper Deck wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I appreciate the fact that they took the time to do that, even when they knew their license was coming to an end. As I mentioned in episode one, this is when Panini came into the basketball game, and we saw jumbo patches in several products early on, including the debut of of their National Treasures RPAs. The wording on the backs of all of these stated, the enclosed event-worn swatch is guaranteed by a Panini America Incorporated. At this point, their veteran stuff was usually marked as the enclosed game-worn swatch is guaranteed by Panini America Incorporated. So even though they weren't always as specific as Upper Deck, they attempted to maintain some level of disclosure about their memorabilia pieces. 
As rookie cards and rookie patches became more and more of a chase, we've seen the number of player-worn patches increase over the years. I know a lot has been made of the player-worn and event-worn stuff, but I also want to point out that Panini has a pretty good history of offering collectors large, veteran, game-worn patches, even from their early years in basketball. The first couple years of Absolute had some really nice jumbo patches. In fact, one of the sets was called Absolute Patches. We didn't get any National Treasures in the 2011-2012 season because of the lockout, but there still were some nice sets and releases like Gold Standard, Past and Present, and Preferred. But it wasn't until late 2013 that things really ramped up, though, with the release of Immaculate and Flawless. And looking back, it's crazy to think that these products were released in a three-week time frame. Flawless came out on October 25th, and Immaculate came out on November 13th. Notice that they both came out around the start of the 2013-2014 season. This gave Panini ample amount of time to get game-worn stuff in these products. Also, remember that this was a double rookie class because of the lockout. So when I look at the backs of these cards, I've noticed that a lot of the rookies from the first year, like Kyrie, are more likely to have game-worn stuff, whereas the second year guys, it's a mix and it's mostly player-worn stuff. The first Flawless release had quite a few patch sets in it, and to give you an idea of what they were trying to do, um, I'll just take one, one of the retired or veteran patch sets, and it was vertical in orientation, it had 75 different subjects, and they did a really good job of including a few obscure players that were never in Upper Deck or Tops or Fleer Relic sets, like Lou Hudson, Reggie Lewis, Manute Bull, Gus Williams, Jamal Wilkes, and Hal Greer. These cards all had a large patch window with foil around it, they had white backgrounds and they were very clean looking, and we've typically seen some variation of this every year since then. After the first year they moved to the horizontal patches and then this past year they finally moved back to the original vertical orientation. Some people complain and they say that they all look too similar and that the set looks the same from year to year. To be honest, I like the continuity. I like being able to put all of my flawless stuff together and you can see the similar branding, but not everyone thinks the same. Collectors in 2013 were still working through flawless when they were presented then with Immaculate, which was another groundbreaking product that featured inscribed logo men, jumbo draft hats, hat tags, hat buttons, insignias, numbers, team logos, nameplate nobility, which had 80 subjects, which is still one of my favorite sets. Um, the Jumbo number set was a mix of 100 rookies and veterans. There were all sorts of RPAs. There were Logoman booklets that featured six different Logoman in them. So there was really a lot to choose from. And one nice thing about the rookie patches in the first year of Immaculate was that they matched the patches that were supposed to be on game jerseys. Meaning, Damian Lillard wears number zero, and his photo shoot jersey actually had number zero on it. So even though it was player worn, it was the jersey that he was supposed to wear. Clay wears number 11 and his card has chopped up ones on it. Over time though, the rookie numbers started to look a little bit suspicious and that was even starting the next year. You see, okay, here's Shabazz Bahamid who wears number 15. Why does his card have a number eight patch on it? Cody Zeller's number 40. Why is there a big piece of a three on this card? Well, the answer is that they were giving a player the number 88 or the number 33 to wear, and they're wearing jerseys that are a 5X or a 6X size. We know this because we've seen some of the tags in the products. It just gives them more material to work with. And if you're in Panini's position, this makes sense. It's a logistics issue. 
And that's really how a lot of product decisions end up being made. So I think this is a good segue to talk a little about how Panini's patch selection has evolved over the years. We've had Flawless and Immaculate every year, and when you combine that with National Treasures, and then for a while we had Memorabilia and Court Kings, we had Silhouettes, you had Preferred, and so on, and that's a lot of patches, especially for the rookies. Panini has to acquire a lot of these either directly from the team, or they have to buy them on NBA auctions or secondary auctions on their own, and as I discussed, for the rookies, it just means at the photo shoot, they're going to have to wear a lot more giant jerseys with threes and eights on them. But how do they fill the rest of the product, though? Not every product is all rookies. Over the last couple of years, I've noticed a major increase of warm-ups being used for veteran patches. And it seems like they worked out deals with a number of teams to get these. Ones that I see quite a bit are the Pacers, I see the Nuggets, the Blazers, and the Magic. And this left a lot of collectors scrambling to find out where these pieces came from. Some collectors were very unhappy when they found out that they were warm-ups, but to be honest, as a Pacers collector, I liked it. Before the most recent jersey change, Pacers patches were starting to get pretty boring. It was the same thing again and again, but the new batch of warm-ups introduced us to so many new types of patches. As far as retired players go, we're seeing a lot more retired player patches of solid but not star players, or cheap Hall of Fame guys. Occasionally we'll get one that's completely out of left field like Brad Davis. If you're wondering right now who that is, well that goes to prove my point. Panini's approach with retired football players is a little bit different. They've started to send new jerseys to this player so they can wear them once, send them back, and then Panini can cut them up and label them as player-worn. Football collectors aren't happy, but they're still buying. And we can laugh with them as basketball collectors, but I think if we were in the same situation, we would probably do the same thing. But I'm really hoping basketball doesn't go this route. I said it in a previous episode, I'll say it again. I think we're going to be there soon, especially with a guy like Kobe Bryant. You might have noticed that they're using a lot less Kobe patches than they used to, or they, at least they've slowed down quite a bit, and I think that's because they're probably running out of stuff. And it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to go on the secondary market and spend a lot of money for his stuff when they already have a good working relationship with him, and they have good access to him, and they could just ask him to wear some stuff. Moving on, a lot of patch sets now really focus on rookies, and as I discussed some in the National Treasures episode last week, I can't imagine how many jerseys these guys are having to wear at the photo shoot, but this wasn't something that Panini themselves ushered in. I've referenced this picture before, and I posted it on my Instagram leading up to this, but there's a picture of, of Mark Ingram at a Topps football photo shoot, and he has so many jerseys on, and he almost looks like the Michelin Man, and it's not even his number. So all of that is to say there, there's a lot of stuff out there to choose from, and how does somebody know what to buy? I'm going to try and give you a few pointers here that I hope can help, excluding price though, because I don't want to focus too much on the market here. But speaking of market, you do have to figure out what you're in the market for. What do you want to collect or acquire? Are you looking for veterans or rookies? Do you want it to have an auto on it? Do you want that auto to be on card? Do you want something that's player-worn or game-worn? You need to study sets on eBay and ComC. Find the card you're interested in and use these tools to look at the back and look at the wording of the card. If you're looking at rookie stuff, just know that your cards are more than likely going to be player-worn. 
And for those of you that are out there chasing RPAs, I know there are a lot of you right now, you need to consider your options. You have to sit back and ask yourself, why do I want this card? Is it because everyone else has determined that it's a very nice card or a very popular card? Or does it actually appeal to you for a number of reasons? Maybe the horizontal version of the new RPAs appeal to you as well and at a fraction of the price. Then get that one. Don't subscribe to the herd mentality. Collect what you like. There are, however, some things to watch out for. And as with anything else that costs money, you need to do your research. And this takes us back to the Donovan Mitchell RPA that inspired this whole episode. Without knowing the patterns of the set or the Mitchell jerseys that Panini used, this would easily pass for a nice RPA. But the original patch has been switched out. And that's one of these issues that collectors are going to run into with all of these nice big patch windows. Some of the weaker patches inevitably get switched out for better ones. My recommendation from here on out would be to question everything. And that doesn't mean you need to take everything through a five-step process, but at least do a little research or studying if you're not familiar with the set. Um, and in light of this whole Panini-Mitchell scandal, I've seen several people blame Panini for creating a high volume of patch cards. Well, that's not Panini's fault. Number one, that's what collectors have been asking for. I'm sure if they could cut costs and just pack out base cards and inserts, they'd be all for that. But people want patches and they want a lot of them. If that wasn't the case, there are plenty of rookie auto sets that could trump the RPA instead, but they haven't. Number two, this didn't even start with Panini. People have been swapping patches for almost two decades. The good thing now, though, is at least we have more tools at our disposal to research and snuff out the bad stuff. Buying stuff from around 2004 and 2005, and especially Fleer, can be tricky. We don't have the benefit of having a lot of this open on video. We don't have the benefit of having all the eBay pictures. We don't have all the original photo bucket scans from box breaks. As I mentioned in episode number one, Fleer went bankrupt and sold off all of their assets, and this included redemption replacements, product blanks with no memorabilia pieces, memorabilia that was partially cut up or had yet to be cut up, etc. Now, one of the absolute worst things, though, that I see people say when looking at a questionable patch is, well, surely no one would fake a Ben Gordon patch. And I'm just using Ben Gordon as an example because I've seen that several times with, with some really nice Ben Gordon patches that have the entire bull's head. But if you look at the Beckett hot list from 2004, you better believe that people were faking those things. And so this isn't to sound elitish or snobbish, but please don't let your ignorance about the basketball card market and about basketball history in general jeopardize a discussion about a questionable patch. If you don't have reasonable knowledge about a situation, don't render an opinion. You might mean well, but you're doing more harm than good. And I'm not going to go too much into this today, but the same general rules apply for possible trimmed cards. One solution that I've seen a lot of collectors propose that would solve a lot of these problems would be to have a, a patch or a jersey database, uh, especially if it came from Panini. Leaf did this for a short amount of time, but it didn't last. I think they had Patrick Ewing and maybe even Carl Malone as well. They did it with Ichiro and Pujols on the baseball side. I'd love to see Panini adopt this. They mentioned doing it at one point, and then it just never happened. So... Until then, we have to examine jumbo patch sets on our own and as a community. Um, a month or two ago, someone posted a number of Allen Iverson jumbo patches that had been switched out. I went through WorthPoint and eBay to try and piece together as much of the print run as I could, and you really have to look for patterns. 
If you have a print run of 25 cards and you find 90% of them have yellow patches on purple jerseys, and then you come across a real nice sample with purple on yellow instead, that should be cause for concern. Now for those of you who like retired player patches like myself, if you do enough digging and study trends and patterns, you can often find pictures of a lot of those jerseys from before they were cut up. There's a video out there of Panini cutting up a Celtics Maravich jersey that's really fascinating. It shows the auction that they bought it from, it shows the process of then cutting it up and putting it into a card from start to finish. And I've probably watched it over a dozen times in the last couple of years. I went through the most recent flawless release and found that most of the retired jerseys used either the latest Hall of Fame auction or the latest Golden auction. So at that point, you have to decide for yourself if you trust who is sourcing jerseys to those auction houses. After hearing all of this, I know a lot of it can seem overwhelming, um, but there are tools out there to help you out. So for example, I'm in the process of piecing together an altered card reference sheet that I posted on the blowout forums. It will never be complete, but it's a start. It's not something you have to sign up for. It's not anything you have to subscribe to. It's free. I want to help you guys out. Um, but then my last group of suggestions for you guys today would, would just be a bit of practical advice. Don't rush. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for multiple opinions. And I've seen a lot of people say that all of this frustrates them so much that they don't buy patch cards, which I think is a shame because as I've mentioned previously, I like large patch cards because really no two patch cards are alike. The ones that are game-worn are little pieces of history, and even the player-worn stuff, they're like little pieces of art to me. But that's a decision that you have to make. I don't think it's necessary, though. I think we can work through this. Hopefully I've said something today that can at least help you a little bit, but now I want to know what you think. Do you have any patch cards in your collection? Maybe you have a favorite. Share your patch cards with me on Instagram with the hashtag patch101. I'll give a sample on my profile, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.